All right. Um, so uh, I'll kick us off here in a second. I do think uh, we are in the paragraph, a revolutionary group, because I think we just had finished yeah. discussing sort of the nature of revolutionary groups uh, and otherwise. So I'm going to kick us off and say and repeat this. Um, so we have that in the recording. But um, hello and thank you for joining us today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are now in the chapter that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Deleuze uh, and Guattari started rewriting it long ago. Uh, we, we, we went through two paragraphs, I think, in our last reading, um, which is just not enough, but we'll keep going. Um, I believe we were in the bottom of uh, 348, a revolutionary group. We just had spent uh, two hours discussing the nature of how desire works and is part of the sort of infrastructure of things and the underpinnings of all of it. And the line specifically, I want to sort of state before we move forward because I think it'll help. Uh, it is understandable, therefore, that a group can be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and in its group conscious investments, but not be so and even remain fascist and police-like from the standpoint of its libidinal investments. Truly revolutionary pre-conscious interests do not necessarily imply unconscious investments of the same nature. An apparatus of interest never takes the place of the machine of desire. Um, to get back all the way to the point of the book, uh, Reich's question, why do men desire their own repression? Uh, that question is the underpinning thing they're finally getting at after taking us through so very, very much. And as we talk about revolutionary groups and how revolutionary groups play and work with each other and interplay with society, we now come to the two types of groups, which is a lot, uh, because why not introduce at the very end of the book entirely new concepts? Um, and we'll be doing that in this next paragraph. Do anyone want to add anything before we move forward? Because this next, this next bit is a it's a short paragraph but we're going to spend a lot on this a lot of time on this a lot of time on this so so they're they're starting to talk a little bit more explicitly although it's sometimes in the parenthetical uh, about power right and this is mm -hmm. something that um, comes up in Foucault's introduction and obviously it's a if you've, if you've read Foucault it's really important to him I just want to um add just a sentence or two to contextualize the discussion on power, particularly with capital associates. So this is just on, uh, I think, one of the shapes power takes. Uh, this is page 346, Deleuze and Guattari. Um, after discussing interest in anti-production, they go on to talk about and write, capitalism garners and possesses the force of being and the interest, power. But it feels a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Oh, to be sure, it is not for himself or his children that the capitalist works, but for the immortality of the system. <laughs> Putting aside that joke for a minute, I just, I just want to make sure we keep that contextualization there, that one of the forms powers um, quite explicitly taking for them uh, is in interest, right? Not just class interest, but as we talked about, kind of more like there's almost a teleological dimension of it. Or you might even say, right, one of the places we're going to find power is going to be uh, the gregarious, right, and how it's formed by interests. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be 
the next couple paragraphs are going to start getting into how we can really start thinking about not just um, as we have so far sort of ourselves as this decentered subjectivity, but how our interactions with others and how the groups that we belong to. And there's a lot of layers of what that can mean. This is not just uh, family. This is not just uh, workplace. This is not union. This is just a multitude of different groups, uh, how they interplay and uh, being able to understand sort of uh, their one, one side revolutionary potential, but also how we might be able to manage that potential and even grow it. It's a really interesting, uh, but this is going to be a lot. So I'm, I'm just going to dive in because there's a lot that's said here and let's give it a shot. <sighs> A revolutionary group at the pre-conscious level remains a subjugated group, even in seizing power, as long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production. The moment it is pre-consciously revolutionary, such a group already presents all the unconscious characteristics of a subjugated group. The subordination to a socius as a fixed support that attributes it to itself the productive forces, extracting and absorbing the surplus value therefrom. The effusion of anti-production and death-carrying elements within the system, which feels and pretends to be all the more immortal. The phenomena of group superegoization, narcissism, and hierarchy. The mechanisms for the repression of desire. A subject group, on the contrary, is a group whose libidinal investments are themselves revolutionary. It causes desire to penetrate into the social field and subordinates the socius, or the form of power, to desiring production. production. Productive of desire, and a desire that produces, the subject group invents always mortal formations that exorcise the effusion in it of a death instinct. It opposes real coefficients of transversality to the symbolic determinations of subjugation, coefficients without a hierarchy or a group, superego. What complicates everything, it is true, is that the same individuals can participate in both kinds of a group. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, same individuals can participate in both kinds of groups in diverse ways. Uh, Saint Just and Lenin, or the same group can present both characteristics at the same time in diverse situations that are nevertheless coexistent. A revolutionary group can already have reassumed and have reassumed the form of a subjugated group, yet be recording. yet be determined under certain conditions to continue to play the role of a subject group. One is continually passing from one type of group to the other. Subject groups are continually deriving from subjugated groups through a rupture of the latter. They mobilize desire and always cut its flows again further on, overcoming the limit, bringing the social machines back to the elementary forces of desire that form them. Oh my. So there you go, folks, for those of you following along at home. You want to be the revolutionary potential, do what Alistair does. Yeah, Don't let damn. anybody finish a sentence. Goddamn bot. <laughs> I'm just going to disconnect him so we don't have that shit happen again. I, actually, uh, 
on the, on the idea of finishing sentences. Now recording. What the Damn, fuck? He, he got me. He's got one he, sec, one sec. He broke my flow. There we go. He'll never bisect us again. Goddamn. Um, Doug, can you can you hit us with um, that footnote at the bottom just because it goes into like the diaspora yeah. and that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this footnote is at the very end of the paragraph. On the group and its rupture or schiz, see Jean-Pierre Fay's Eclats. Now recording. Okay, I am going to have to ban this bot. Like, what the fuck? How is it doing that? I don't know. I've told it to leave four times. It just doesn't listen. <laughs> um, I will read from the uh, footnote. I'm going to edit all this out anyway. Um, goddamn stupid bot. On the group and its rupture or schiz, see Jean-Pierre Fay's Eclats. Now recording. Wow. Fuck off, bot. All right. Apologies, everyone, for that. Um, that's why I have my backup recording going anyway. Jesus. Um, let's see. On the group and its rupture or schiz, see Jean-Pierre Fay's Eclats, change, number seven, page 217, quote, what counts, what is effective in our opinion is not such and such a group, but rather the dispersion or the diaspora produced by their splinterings, also page 212 through 213, on the necessarily polyvocal character of subject groups and their writing. And so um, I, yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting after, you know, we talked about division uh, yesterday. I thought this was kind of an uh, interesting thing kind of following that discussion. I mean, I'm not going to... We've had a lot of chats on the server, especially when we start talking about kind of uh, what it means to be part of any sort of semblance of revolutionary, I mean, anything, I almost could say. Um, the the nature of what it means to be left. I've had a lot of conversations around, uh, both in the streams and personally and on here. And it's an ongoing discussion we've had of what it means to actually be someone who wants to make change. And what is a revolutionary group? Uh, sort of dogmatic uh, standards. And, and again, I'm not talking about any particular theory. I'm just talking about sort of the, the dogmatic sort of sense of things is that as long as you're anti-America, anti-imperialism, uh, as long as you are something, you're naturally part of a revolutionary group and that there's potential in there. Uh, going all the way back to those who believe like hardline Marxists that uh, the proletariat is naturally um, a revolutionary group sort of in itself. And a lot of this has been sort of taking this on this section, especially um, inside of this chapter has been sort of taking to task this idea that uh, any pre-conscious investment you may have, it may seem to align. Uh, and you can go back to uh, the communists and the Bolsheviks all the way through to, fuck, how many online left groups uh, ultimately show themselves to be hyper-fascist? It's a very strange thing. Um, is there revolutionary potential there? Well, it's presumed that there is, but maybe not. Maybe as they start here and we'll just start making our way through this, um, a revolutionary group at the pre-conscious level remains a subjugated group as long as this power itself 
refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production. Um, I was watching a video uh, just as an example of this. I was watching a video of uh, someone who's uh, fighting deeply for trans rights, uh, but specifically is against drag queens uh, because it doesn't follow gender norms and got very, very upset when someone said that they didn't follow gender norms and they, to them, they did. Their move is not a revolutionary one by nature. It is one of crushing, desiring production. It doesn't matter what it may seem that they're sort of pre-conscious uh, uh, group, their pre-conscious revolutionary stances. Underneath it, they're looking to crush desiring production. As long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production, they are a subjugated group, even if they have seized power. Um, it doesn't matter if they've gained the upper hand. It doesn't matter if they actually are the ones in control. Ultimately, it is about how desiring production is treated. It was the Vosh debate. Yeah, it was. I, I, someone sent it to me and I found it fascinating. Um, anytime you start having these discussions, uh, we have uh, in leftist, uh, in big air quotes, um, uh, circles online, you see it all the time with people who claim to be communist, people who claim to be uh, hyper-revolutionary anything. And then ultimately they slowly come around to this sort of weirdly fascist way that they treat desire and that desiring production itself needs to be crushed because even if we let them have power, what then? Now we have this sort of setup where uh, this, sub this subjugated group still under the control effectively of the socius. They're subjugated by society and the socius at large. They're now, you know, the accoutrements are different, but they're now the ones who are setting things up. It was really, it's always interesting to see with these things when they happen, and it happens a lot in leftist groups. Um, it's a, you can find a million examples of Peter Coffin and Haas and uh, the, the people around Dugan or, the people against that who are so anti-Dugan that they want Russia flattened. Um, they're, they're not really looking at the actual place that matters, which is desiring production. They're very focused on uh, really their own subjugation, but having power and being able to sort of subjugate themselves. It's a really interesting way that they've sort of turned this and made us not necessarily take a look at the representational elements or what claims people make or what uh, place they sort of have inside of the networked hierarchy, which does not determine anything. It is emergent. Uh, ultimately, to take that and then move the lens instead to how they plan to have in their, you know, new, brave new world, uh, the nature of how desire production is treated and allowed. Is this first sentence I find exceptionally powerful. Please, any comments on it or questions? This is going to be a long paragraph for us, so please don't hesitate to be like, I don't understand what the fuck you're talking about, which is fine. Um, that's kind of this point. I'll share the uh, PDF in my stream if you want to watch uh, and just sort of read uh, and think over it. Uh, you're more than welcome to. I'll leave it open for a moment on this first sentence. So I, um, I realized that uh, my sociology world has a parallel to this, and it's the most uh, 
kind of like straight laced um anti-revolutionary perspective ever but it's uh robert k merton's typology of deviance typology of deviance yeah I'll, I'll post the link to kind of like the freshman sociology sparks notes version but there's a typology perfect um where essentially uh it's about he calls it cultural goals but we can call it the goals of the socius um or you could say you know what is what is what is uh expected for you to desire and institutionalized means how do you acquire that which you desire and there's only one little box for rejecting both the goals and the means and that's rebellion but um this is used by criminology students and uh, people who study deviance as a social construct as a way of understanding uh, how you might land into one of these boxes based on your social location and your position within the socius. And I, I just couldn't help but thinking, oh, there's four boxes for subjugated groups and one, uh, arguably, for the subject group. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, the, the rebellion group, I think, would be um, Merton's sort of take on that. I really like this. This, this, this actually is... Um, I mean, it, 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 I, I have, I'm sure it's probably simple stuff to, to sociology people, but I, just looking over it, it's like, it, ultimately, it is um, the, the challenge we have when a lot of us look at how do we make change is just being against a thing doesn't make you do anything new. It, it, you're still within the conditions that allow you to be against the thing, and you're fighting it directly. Uh, you're fighting Wall Street by adding a handful of regulations, but maintaining the overall capitalist structure. That's not revolutionary. Uh, breaking down and, and saying that you're going to completely destroy all of it and you want nothing, is that, is that, that's also not an alternative. Desiring production still exists. How does it get modified and how does it work? So it's instead of rejecting everything or modifying and accepting some of it, the question is building new, starting with new and having new as all the different parts. I, I, I will look over this, but thank you. That's, um, it seems apropos. Yeah, um, and I also wanted to say, like, Merton had nowhere near the same intention as Deleuze and Guattari. Um, uh, I think for the most part, Merton and the people who called themselves criminologists back then were focused on trying to find a way to get everybody into conformity or at the very least retreatism, except that you can't actually have what you want. Well, I, I, I think you tend to find a lot of people in that kind of space or mindset are actually the ones who tend to be most overly honest. Uh, Freud very much was about that. Like he wasn't a revolutionary person or fighting for revolution. He was very much about getting people ultimately to conform, but he gave us the understanding of libidinal desire. Uh, you could argue Adam Smith, Robert, uh, 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 God damn it. Um, God damn it! The guy who gave us the uh, labor theory of value that Marx used, Ricardo. Ricardo, thank you. Um, they they uh, gave us labor as an abstract concept. They were hardly anti-capitalist um, because for a lot of people, this hyper cynicism and looking through the system that they have, it'll actually they understand it so well that they're kind of like, oh, here are the things we need to avoid. And it's like we can actually take notes from that, <laughs> like we really can. Because someone who's that melded into the system, you can find good shit. At least in my experience. I think, too, that we want to keep in mind how they're talking about this here, right? Because they're, especially because they're, they're 
taking the pains to try and, you know, consider how the, and the Russian Revolution is, a, is definitely an easy, um, although sometimes very difficult to understand um, example of this, right? How can a group be pre-consciously revolutionary, uh, but unconsciously reactionary, right? So how, how can those things both be true? Um, I think one of the ways they're looking at that, right, is in some sense, I can definitely see where you're coming from with the um, the deviance thing there, right? Where it just so happens the people who um, aren't fitting the bots go and have their own special bots, right? I think too, though, we want to keep in mind that um, Kind of what we were talking about with the interest thing in that too, though, right? We want to follow this because it's. I'll it's I'll run. I think I us... I think I know where you're going. Um, do you mind real quick, Jack? No, go for it. Um, so with Merton, I've 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 only read now uh, a little bit. Um, Merton does I think one of the one of the things we've done in general is we like to talk about having new goals or new systems. And that's great. Like, sure, that's fine. But this is the pre-conscious revolutionary investments because they are goals. So even Merton's like fifth box, which is about new goals and new means, where instead of conforming to the system, you are ultimately rejecting it in favor of innovation. It's not so much that, but it's even that you have new entire means of doing the thing. And it's not so much about rejecting your cultural goals, but actually about making new ones. This is to them, they want us to take a step beyond thinking through the representational side of what capitalism is. That it's, oh, it's markets or it's Wall Street or it's how money works. And it's like, no, it's the machine overall is made of a ton of pieces. And one of the things that it does is it actually conditions goals. And goals condition what we do next. The the way that we look out over the horizon of our immediate moment and plan things and we aim, we say, oh, I'm gonna be successful, I'm gonna be this, I'm gonna be a revolutionary, we're gonna have a society with exactly this setup, we're going to do these things. These are paranoiac investments by nature. And this section is about that positive task of the identification of where you sit kind of on the, the gradient of the uh, paranoiac to the uh, schizo, the revolutionary to the reactionary, the, the very confirmed on one side to the other. So even with Merton's plans of saying, oh, we want new goals and new means, and that's what rebellion is, that's where they're saying, hold up, wait, wait, wait. Like, sure, you can have new goals, that's great, new means. Yes, those things are great and they're necessary for that because you have to have that in the pre-conscious stage. You have to have those things. but if those goals and if that power that is ultimately seized or even the power that's anticipated or the power of the group itself is used to crush desiring production underneath it, it doesn't matter. Because those goals and those means condition desiring production and crush it. And if we can put ourselves in a place where instead of having new goals and new means, we actually sidestep that. We'll be getting to the rest of this paragraph. Um, actually, let's stick with it for now. Um, the subjugated group through seizing power, as long as the power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production, it doesn't matter. 
The moment is pre-consciously revolutionary. Such a group already presents all the unconscious characteristics of a subjugated group. The subordination to a socius as a fixed support that attributes to itself the productive forces extracting and absorbing surplus value therefrom, the effusion of anti-production and death-carrying elements within the system, which feels and pretends to be all the more immortal, the phenomena of group super-egoization, narcissism, and hierarchy, the mechanisms for the repression of desire. So they even take it a step further. You need to not utilize the socius and the way that Basically, desire production is not only crushed, but how representation uh, sort of codes it and builds it and, and conditions it. You need to take a step back and look at how desiring production is treated under any group structure in any setup, because a subjugated group will always crush it. It will always crush it and thus will always lead to repression and thus will always lead towards inevitably fascinism because it's just a growth towards a paranoiac direction. And so they want us to get away from the idea of thinking through goals and means, even if they're new, even if they're exciting, if they're all different and shatter the entire sort of paradigm of that and break away and go, what else can we do besides having goals and means? I would argue that's, that's a lot of what they're saying. Because this next part of the paragraph gets into that, where they talk about the subject group. It is a group whose libidinal investments are themselves revolutionary. It causes desire to penetrate into the social field, subordinate the socius or the form of power to desiring production, productive of desire and a desire that produces. The subject group invents always mortal formations that exercise the effusion of its death instinct. The oppose, it opposes real coefficients of transversality to the symbolic determination of subjectivity, subjugation, coefficients without a hierarchy or group superego. That's a lot of sentences. Um, we'll break it down. Um, we start through it. Uh, the subject group versus the subjugated. Subjugated group, uh, I think, is a very useful term for this. The subject group is, at large, it's a really interesting phrasing, which we can talk through later. Um, but here, it is not about the revolutionary potential of their preconscious, but instead the libidinal thems the libidinal investments themselves what desire actually desires, where the desire is attaching intensities, where it's moving and how it's going. That is the overall revolutionary potential that's actually happening there. This causes desire to penetrate into the social field. Uh, and they've talked multiple times about desire being actually dangerous for the socius if it, if it penetrates to that level. And at this point, when you do that, it subordinates socius, the power uh, it subordinates the socius uh, and the form of power, the space of representation to desiring production. This flip is where you start having desire being primary and, and allowing it to flow and allowing it to have investments and, and seeing sort of what happens next. I have a theory of all of this and how it ends, but very specifically here, it is about the movement away from the space of the representation of the subjugation of the pre-conscious investments, oh, I'm this group, oh, I'm that, which leads to deeply awful narcissist hierarchical uh, super-egoization, as they phrase it, and instead moving us to a subject group, which is an amazing sort of turn of phrase of um, a group of subjects. Oh, yes, almost like a multiplicity of, of individuals, but also growth, just like their desiring machines are underneath them. 
this this hyper emergent sort of group that is just dealing with desiring machines as it goes and desire as it's produced and its investments. It is productive of desire and the desire that produces. The subject group invents always mortal formations, not immortal, that exorcise the effusion in it of a death instinct. The, they embrace the, na the nature of change. They don't fight for a forever. They don't demand these uh, concepts or representations or ideas that have total immortality. Instead, they hyper embrace the mortality of the things that they're making. Fuck the death instinct. We don't need it. Kind of thing. It's an amazing uh, set of paragraphs. Uh, amazing set of sentences. Sorry. I'm still finishing my tea for the morning. It's been a long day. I just love this section. I fucking love this section so much. It's a, to me, it's an important distinction because as you have, if you have a structure that you're looking to go into, if you have a adherence to any sort of power that still crushes desire production, repression is there. That's it. Like it's, it's repressions there. You are not revolutionary. You are changing the current system and modifying it, but you're still there. Um, uh, Anarcho-capitalists, simple version of this, their hyper-attachment to representation and their pre-conscious belief that man is nat naturally going to do these things and will behave this certain way. They talk about freedom. They talk about representation. They talk about all these things, but what they're actually sexually attracted to, their desiring machines are actually invested in is strong men and power and ownership and having that or being a part of that. These are the things that they attach to their, their fiction, their worlds, their uh, comic books that they like all the way through. They love the idea of singular strongmen. Their investment is in this. Their investment is in hierarchies. And uh, well, they may say, and they do say that every man will be free and everyone will have choice and that everyone can do whatever they do. They absolutely know underneath it that they're only talking to a point. They're a subjugated group. They're wanting to continue the same socius reality, the same conditioning of desire and the same crushing of it inside of the setup. Hi, um, I'm just wondering if it may be possible to talk about this part of the text, um, like more historically contextualized to when Deleuze and Guattari were writing it as opposed to necessarily like relating it to uh groups of people acting currently sure um i mean we could go into the i mean they're talking greatly about multiple acts that were happening in uh, 1968 um the revolution of 68 as uh, you may call it uh they they're directly referencing a handful of those things they're also going back and talking about uh, as i mentioned the bolshevik revolution because they've talked about this throughout this and it's kind of that underlying, why did it end up? Why did it go so bad? Why did 68 go so bad? Why do these revolutionary uh, things end up with people who are themselves deeply repressive? Um, I, if, if you have more examples, I'd love to hear. Um, um, I'm open, for sure. I, I mostly try to relate it to things that are happening now because it's, um, it's easier for me, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear if you have other ones. I'd love to hear more examples. Um, 
I'll just open open that up to to anyone. If anyone has other examples of sixty eight era time, I don't have any of like that immediate time, but I I usually just go back to the Russian Revolution because I think. I mean, that's the one they want to focus on, right? Or like here where they're talking about the diaspora, um, although that's very general. But I think the Russian Revolution is probably one of the easy ones just because I th I think it really does illustrate this point that you do, you know, the, the molar and molecular have an inclusive disjunction, right? Because we're following the formation of groups basically through the unconscious and how it produces itself, right? And then it becomes, you know, you go back to their critique of psychoanalysis in terms of uh, regression and progression, right? So it takes that self-production of the unconscious and it kind of puts it in a form of reproduction, right? Uh, if I remember correctly. I, I think this is the kind of thing they're looking at here when we talk about, like, what happens with a subjugated group. They end up reproducing... Um, you know, new forms of hierarchy, new forms of narcissism, uh, new forms of super-egoization, right? So, like, external values that act as a, um, I usually think as a form of kind of judgment, right? Uh, and I, I kind of lean that way because I've probably read too much Kafka, but if you've, maybe if you've read The Castle, you kind of know what I'm talking about, where there's all these kind of mysterious laws that, you know, um, come into view as things are going on and they you know they have a way of reorganizing things but also kind of i, I would say preventing some flows right and then k's just haplessly doing things that happen to release flows and that's a little bit more i think um the distance from the russian revolution right where this wasn't about the way that goals were forming the um the subjects of the unconscious, right? The groups, uh, or at least it's not entirely how to understand the way the investments potentialize. It's important to understand mm. that things like goals are, are themselves just like um, the gregarious dependent on these formations um, is kind of, well, if I say apparatuses, it's probably going to muddy things a little bit, but just like we were saying a little bit earlier, right? what produces that those forms of power that sort of um connect these things although i'm thinking here paralogistically uh connect these things that i think is where they start to see the russian revolution coming together where you have the um the gregarious but more importantly right it's always the i always go back to the classic foucault line and i'll, I'll stop here because this, this one was contemporary contemporary but it's his remarks to chomsky in their debate um and chomsky's making i i would say he's making some of these um, mistakes going toward the pre-conscious uh and he's talking about the importance of you know the, the syndicalism and some representations of um you know more toward truth and justice right and foucault remarks well go back to the russian revolution right they said something similar, and they said that they were doing it all to crush the bourgeois and to free the proletarian subjectivity, which was the true subjectivity, and this was what made it just. And when they took power, what was the model of subjectivity? 
bourgeois subjectivity? What was the model of fashion, um, of fashion in that subjectivity, bourgeois fashion? What was the vernacular, bourgeois? You know, so the hierarchies and these narcissisms and what, we're, what they're talking about do change, but they reproduce these things, right? It's a reproduction of the bourgeois now um, overcoded as proletariat. Mm. I, I also have, I think, if, if we want to talk directly about the authors, I think Guattari, probably more than Deleuze um, on this, had a lot more direct activism. Um, Deleuze, much more of the academic type Guattari, definitely liked shit kicking in the trenches, uh, to put it lightly. Um, he was a member of the French Communist Party, and he wrote extensively, um, because I said was a member, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about before his death even, um, uh, he wrote extensively and critiqued when uh, there was an invasion of Hungary by the Soviets, and he opposed that. But the French Communist Party stepped in line and was perfectly happy with this Soviet invasion of Hungary. And so they expelled him for this. Um, this was a, a big deal to him personally, but I think, you know, we have very clear parallels of this in our time today, where the Communist Party was in line. It wasn't that they were necessarily about even their ideals or principles. Um, and one of those was significantly about, you know, non-invasion, non-war, like not that it was a peace party, like it was a, but it wasn't certainly about mass military tanks rolling into Hungary. And that's what Guattari wrote about and spoke of, and they expelled him. So he was tossed out. And I think he took that and sort of ran with it and like, wait, why, what the fuck would we're supposed to be communists and there's this ideal underneath it. And he started trying to break down why this French communist group would end up supporting what was a flatly a fairly tyrannical government and tanks and invasions and civilian deaths. And that sort of move for him made him sort of, uh, uh the iconoclast he became and very formative for him later on. Um, and then that, I think, happened a second time with the May 68 uh, strikes. The May 68 strikes in France, uh, which, again, Guattari, uh, super uh, involved in. Um, there's a series of wonderful books on it. Uh, God, uh, there's one book about both of them. I can't remember the title. I will put the PDF up. But um, the, the story of Guattari during that, he was deeply involved in this sort of insurrection of workers and the strikes, which actually did seriously disrupt most of France. It did an amazing job of it, actually. But that didn't turn out the way any of them expected. Uh, while it was sort of an upheaval, what ended up happening was France sort of fell even deeper into this some sort of liberal or semi what ultimately became neoliberal sort of tranche. And so why did they even do this? And he started to see that workers' movements, these very unique little bits all over France were slowly being absorbed into the French Communist Party, which was being put in line with a handful of powerful interests. But it, it isn't so much as simple as others thought and he critiqued. It's not just that, oh, they were friends or money's flowing. It's that underneath it, well, you say you believe in these things and you may because of your status in life, your uh, your location socially, you may have these social investments, these pre-conscious investments. Underneath it, your desire attaches and is invested in those very systems and that very level of power that you claim to be destroying. And this back and forth, which can exist in the same person, 
is what they're getting at here, that you can have both of those. It just means the revolution will fail. Conversely, if you have only the revolutionary desire energy, like that underlying uh, 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 level, uh, you doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be successful because you still need the pre-conscious as well. You need these things to pretty much be in line uh, for them to work out. And that's a, it's a really interesting breakdown of why these things work and, and how uh, revolutions sort of come to be. I come to mind, I, I know they made commentary very lightly on uh, uh, Khmer Rouge, which I think is another really interesting case of this. Uh, um, anyone who knows the, the writings of Ho Chi Minh, the story of Vietnam, what happened in, with the Khmer Rouge, they very much have this pre-conscious class interest in making an egalitarian society. But they started changing around where it wasn't so much that, but now that the Khmer were actually the only people who could be part of the revolution and the killing fields became a thing because of that. Even though they had the pre-conscious investment, they did not have the desiring production in line with that. They're, they were a subjugated, not a subject group. Um, I don't think I have any other examples that I can... I don't think I can think of any others. I hope that helped whistle. I, if you have any others, I'm, I'm open as well. Um, because I think they, I mean, Guattari wrote extensively, especially early on about a lot of these things. And he didn't use a lot of the language he ended up using once he and sort of uh, Deleuze started down this sort of trail. But you can see a lot of these same sort of frustrations in how he writes and what he's talking about and his pamphlets that he was handing out where he really got really upset about the French Communist Party. Um, we'll say. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And again, I, I would suggest, um, I'm, I'm just going to look it up. Uh, I'm going to get it right now. While you're uh, retrieving that, just to, just to expand how we're thinking about this too, right? So like I mentioned, the paralogisms, right? Part of this is a question of how do these groups form, right? Because we're, it's, it's a similar point you see in, in Deleuze's work, right? Decentering the circle. You know, how does something that becomes central get decentered? This is um, a move he focuses on a lot. And we're seeing that kind of thing as a kind of, um, in some ways, it's kind of a test of these things, right? Is like sub, subju subjugated groups can still splinter into um, subject groups, right? And that's kind of one of the things they look at, because I think, you know, you, you mentioned early Guadri work, right? This is kind of blasé, but I always like the way he phrased this, and I, I think it's machine structure. He says, how does a group get unstuck, right? So if you're stuck in hierarchy, if you're stuck in the uh, superego and the external values that you kind of uh, find yourself petrified with, um, if you're stuck with the narcissism, right, with kind of the, and this is the pre-conscious and Freud in some sense, right, what will the ego attach to? What what will um, represent me in a sense? What will I identify with? If you're stuck in all that, right, how do you release desire? Um, or rather, how does this, I think that might be how they even say it here, right? How does one allow desire to flow? I think that's kind of the critical thing here, right? Because to 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 move that toward a conclusion, then right, part of the way these um, subjugated groups form, like we were saying with the gregarious and that, 
um, and and I, I use the Foucault Chomsky example because like the the bourgeois proletariat thing I think is a really easy instance to point at where it's you know we're going back to identification right what is the transcendent signifier it's very often the bourgeois the proletariat right the thing I am or the thing I am not you know you start to see these things cropping up and this is I think what gets groups stuck right is you're stuck in that problem and it's very often a this is almost a Kierkegaardian way to say it but it's very often a problem of being stuck in an identity um, or what you're able to take for granted of right what values and what um, identities can you simply just take for granted that um, by virtue of being right that is enough this is kind of the narcissism i think they're and, and they mean it psychoanalytically of course but that's kind of the thing they're getting at could it could it also have to do with like a sense of temporality in there too like um division of like how how temporality is experienced um like in relation like uh the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat being like having like different senses of temporality like not just different values but like kind of experiencing like different like different experiences of time and how like time is divided and labor is divided so i, I my first reaction is i'm gonna it's it's uh, this is I'm, this is going to be a long discussion if I would give a full one. Um, I would say first, I mean, the answer is yes, in the sense that temporality is deeply important to everything Deleuze sort of talks about and the way time functions is really, really important. In this particular case, I think it's less about saying that someone is this class or another because these are not necessarily determinate or predetermined elements. They are more contingent, emergent elements of where a person is socially. As such, the overall investments come in two forms. You have your pre-conscious, where a worker, a proletariat, is uh, they're fucked by society, they're poor, they necessarily have the revolutionary potential and investments in a better life. For example, you might say, they would disagree with this, but let's just say that, that that's the case, that this proletariat group has that. Um, underneath that, though, their desiring production ultimately is so molded by the machine that they're a part of that they actually don't have revolutionary potential in the in that version in their unconscious investments in their desire investments and so as such the things that they're invested in from desire are strongmen are uh, the the power the economic the, these are the things that their desire pulls them towards and while they may have uh, the the they may say or have an understanding of even their location sort of in the revolution uh, or their potential of it, their desire is so shaped by the system they don't have actually the ability to really end up in that. There's a, um, there's a way that uh, we can talk about this. Um, I'll let Jack go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find my words for a moment, apologies. No, I, like, I, I like this, the kind of conversation we're having because uh, I, I agree with you. Like, Deleuze cares about time. He cares about time a lot. Mm -hmm. um, um, and yeah, it, it does. They do use the example of time earlier on, and they use the example of um, a clock. A clock is a technical machine, but also as a 
uh, a social machine. And actually, the example they give is how it um, how it functions uh, in terms of dividing up the day, right? Uh, it's one example of kind of a more molar function of it. And I think to answer your question, or at least to start to answer it and, and carry on with um, you know this conversation the three of us are having, I I. I tend to think that with temporality, right, it seems like temporality, we find it as part of these processes of production. So it's kind of time in the making, um, or maybe making time, however you like. But more importantly, right, it's that um, in the molar, right, I think that the way time is talked about is going to be, and the way time is kind of involved in production, right, it's going to be a time related where, like the kind of bourgeois proletariat time we're talking about, it's especially with goals in that, I think we're going to be looking at time in that manner. The kind of molecular time I think they're talking about, um, and in some ways the, the contrast between life and death near the um, halfway point of the paragraph may help us think through some of this, but I tend to think, right, Part of what's happening with being stuck is that's a different way of thinking about time and a different production of time um, than time getting unstuck, right? Than the flows of desire being released, because that's not going to be necessarily like a um, a what, you know, a whose time is it question, right? It's going to be more a question, I think, of like, how did something like the bourgeois as a as this kind of transcendent signifier, as this global person, how was that released and that flow of desire actually um, returned as an intensity, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of segmented out as an identity it, it, in the context that they're speaking, right? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, uh, this is this is one of those things that I think I could end up spending hours just talking about because the the way class is handled and shifts, um, and I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand this. This is my caveat, as I give quite often. Um, uh, mostly, I'm an idiot, so just if my talking helps you understand things, that's great. Don't ever think I'm talking the truth or know a thing more than you. Um, the uh, the move that they've made sort of to breaking down the idea of, well, you are a proletariat or a bourgeois and you innately have X, Y, or Z or a pre-conscious investment, or you may have all these things they've, they've seen over and over. And I think, I mean, I, again, not to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up modern. I can give a million examples of proletariats or, or what I would presume would be, or what I used to call that, who absolutely desire their own repression, who are, you know, they're wanting change. And so it's why, um, uh, I might interpret this, let's talk about Trump for a second. I might interpret this as saying that generally speaking, there is a pre-conscious investment in a general change that the proletariat has. The working class is especially white, but uh, we saw a massive change in demographics starting to vote for the Republicans in 2020 here in the States. We're seeing it throughout Europe too. And they come from a weird working class sort of background quite often. This shift is a question of, and they use the language of the revolution. We want to change things. We want to break it down. 
but ultimately they then get subsumed into that. We see it on the left as well. This is not just purely that. It's people who want change X, Y, and Z, and they end up becoming subsumed inside of the Democratic Party or some element thereof, or the Greens uh, here in the States, because we will only ever have apparently one third party. Um, these things get subsumed into the power structure because ultimately all they want is a goal and a thing. And so if the socius is able to create a new axiom, a new way for the rules to set up that allow that, it sates that investment from a pre-conscious effort. And the underneath the libidinal investment doesn't go further because really that's what they wanted. Uh, like underneath it, that's what they're invested in. They're invested in that structure. And so it's how we can constantly see these things being subsumed by the power structure, the, the sort of neoliberal market-based socius that we're living in nightmare that things kind of move into and get subsumed into because this structure sort of plays in that direction. Um, specifically to go back, uh, this is what Guattari wrote about labor unions, uh, workers' movements in France being subsumed by the French Communist Party. Now, granted, it was only after he got expelled from it that he was this critical, but I think his point's pretty valid still. This, hey, this, this thing exists, so that way there's only ever one movement for all workers to get behind. And you can't have a million revolutions in France. You're only ever going to have the one. And the one is sort of uh, this party that plays politically. It's, um, I think you can draw some pretty clear lines between that and just general power inside of a capitalist socius in the rest of the world as well. There's a lot of these things that sort of do the, the one marks line for sure. Uh, first is tragedy, then is farce. Uh, there's a lot of that in these kinds of political discourse and revolutionary plays. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite Marx sets to the Brumari. I, I just wanted to add one more thing um, as we're moving through this. We, we talked a lot about goals. I, I think there's two things to keep in mind as they're going through this, right? We talked about the production of goals and how they fit into the molar and these things we're talking about in terms of subjugation, right? Part of it, I think, helps us to keep in mind because I think sometimes we have this, you know, this sense that like, you know, it, it, it's we're working this out, right? But it sometimes feels like maybe they're saying no goals whatsoever. And, you know, Brits, I hear you trying to address that too, where it's like, they're, they're not saying no goals whatsoever, right? But it's another thing to talk about. How does desire produce goals, especially at the molar level, right? How does that happen at the unconscious level? That's what they're focusing on, um, as opposed because this is a distinction. Uh, it's, uh, from, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, finish this thought. I'll turn it over to you, my friend. Um, it's a distinction they'll make with like Reich in that, right? Is Reich is trying to think of desire on its own terms and he goes so far, except at the point where he kind of puts desire back into reason, right? And that's something I think kind of helps here is like. There's a way to talk about goals through something we might reason, but it's a whole nother thing. And this is, I think, where they're focusing, right? How are goals formed by the unconscious and, the, and in its relation with desire, as opposed to how are we going to reason through a problem? Go ahead, Brits. Um, to me, I, I, I just want to make it just a slight edge um, uh, in the wording. Um, when we talk about uh, desire producing goals, 
I would even say that mostly what they're wanting people to realize is that that is the case, that if we can move goals to being in service of desire and understand that representation is in service of desire, that's the move. The challenge is that we often have goals making desire crushed into it, utilizing the way that desire is uh, uh, fucked up by the paralogisms and the nature of desiring production when representation is pushed into it. Um, this, this to me is kind of where they bifurcate, where it's the subjugated group uh, has goals, but ultimately they are about crushing desire. So it doesn't matter what representation, but their goals are representationally based. They're not, in, they're not desire. It's not desire producing those goals. It is those goals that are manipulating and crushing desire. And these are the two directions of the subjugated and subject group. The example they gave, um, for example, uh, the uh, Saint Just, um, which is, uh, if you know about the French Revolution, uh, a long, long time ago, not the '68, like the the big one. Uh, the 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 setup there with Saint Just is he was absolutely a, a revolutionary uh, ex army guy who was just wildly uh, not only young but like super revolutionary in how he talked and he was powerful and people loved him and he wanted to change everything but then over time he went from like this every man should be free to yeah we're gonna murder anyone who's not like on our side and the terrors that followed the Robespierre shit like all of that ultimately then came all the way back to sort of him. And this thing that he did where he changed and made a revolution, changed everything, underneath it all, his desires were actually invested in the status quo. And that's how he recreated it. It's actually a really depressing story, powerful, uh, but really super depressing as well. The story of Robespierre and, and St. Just is actually really incredible. And, and to your point, right, Deleuze and Guadri are, are getting at him as an example of someone who, right, they don't just stay in one group, they go over and over again between these groups, right? They're produced anew in a subjugating group and then produced anew in a subject group, right? And, you know, it's the same thing they say about Freud and Lacan, right? That these guys, there's this revolutionary potential to early Freud's work, um, but it doesn't stay there, right, later, especially near the end of his career, right, is, is much more, in, um, you know, we would say reactionary in Deleuze and Guattari's terms, right? This it seems they're saying the same thing to your point about, um, I don't speak French, Saint-Just? Saint-Juste? <laughs> Saint-Just. I, I think it's Just. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm an Anglophile who, who can barely speak English. That's, that's why I made my username uh, Latin, for that reason. But 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 Saint Just his his life ended with the revolutionaries that he had sort of founded because ultimately it came around. He gave his famous speech where he said, um, like I think the day before he was guillotined, maybe maybe right before, where he said that um, I I am a faction of my own. I think something like that, where it wasn't even that he was even with anyone. I am a faction of one, and it was this like really odd polar opposite direction of where he had been about, you know, fraternite, um, uh, brotherhood and, and togetherness and the change for man. And then just the, sh the shift over his, his life, incredibly short life, um, is, is powerful and, but very much in this direction that they're talking about. Yeah. And to your point, right. 
you know, this is part of why it's not really, I don't think it's an essentialist argument they're making, right? Uh, that's probably, probably obvious to those of you who've read this book before. But um, to that point, right, I mean, especially as we look toward the next paragraph where they're about to talk about Artaud, right? It is possible for a subjugated group or a subject group to consist of uh, what appears to be a person, right? And I think this is the big thing, right? You know, especially when we're talking about that first synthesis and the way it's the difference between partial objects and connection and global persons, right? Um, this helps us understand that, like, when they talk about subjugative groups, right, they're, in, in a sense, one way to take that is they're talking about social production subjugating desiring production right mm -hmm. this is not a this is not their time period per se but it's in the the midway point so maybe i get some street cred for that right rick Roderick uses an example that i think is really apt here the the 10-step plan 10-step plans to stop you to lose weight are you know in the in the gregarious right his point is that they're 10-step plans to stop eating Right, that's a flow of desire that's being um, crushed with the representation of losing weight. Mm -hmm. Right, this is the kind of thing that, without going into like the larger examples, the Russian Revolution. This is the kind of thing I think they're they're trying to put their finger on. How do these things work? I think so too. Um, do we get through this paragraph? Jesus. No, not yet. Uh, I mean, we did talk through most of this. Uh, a revolutionary group can already have reassumed the form of a subjugated group, yet be determined under certain conditions to continue to play the role of a subject group. One is continually passing from one type of group to the other, Subject groups are continually deriving from subjugated groups through a rupture in the latter. They mobilize desire and always cut its flows again further on, overcoming the limit, bringing the social machines back to the elementary forces of desire that form them. Um, subjugated groups uh, are not hopeless. Like this is not, again, uh, to, to go back, this is not a... Oh no, the bourgeois aren't a place they're awful in the proletariat's where we have to find hope. And it's not saying, no, the bourgeois where we find hope and the proletariat's not. It's uh, it's that's stuck inside of the space. Step back and and realize one that people move back and forth sort of from all the groups all the time, but that revolutionary groups can actually have come from the subjugated groups. Um because under certain conditions, they can play the role of subject groups. Because again, uh, desire is conditioned and it's hyper-contingent and how. And so the question is, what is the uh, arrangement of things that enables this? How is, how is this working? How, how do we enable this? Uh, as they say, one is continually passing from one type of group to the other. Subject groups are continually deriving from subjugated groups through a rupture of the latter. They mobilize desire and always cut its flows again further on, overcoming the limit, bringing the social machines back to the elementary forces that desire of desire that form them. This is the how we produce subject groups. They're constantly being the ones who split off, who break, who add these other things, who become sort of the ones who overturn the subjugated groups and 
they become subject groups in that they move through them very quickly, uh, back and forth. It's again, uh, they said early on, this entire section is about sort of the two poles, the paranoid and the schizophrenic and the movement between them. You're going to see this in everything that there is nobody who is, uh, none of us are just on one side of the pole. It is an oscillation and we are moving between them almost at all times. That's true of being in a subjugated or subject group. Like we're moving between them. This is the nature of, as they've described, capital. Like this is how capitalism works. It's about constantly finding that edge and then subsuming it and then building. It does that through these groups, but there's potential, there's move here. And that's kind of this next uh, paragraph that talks through that. Uh, any questions, any thoughts on any of this? Uh, this has been a lot. Oh my God, we have one paragraph and we're uh, 70 minutes. Okay, good. That's great. I'm excited for that. This is why I get out of bed in the morning, man. <laughs> oh, I remember now. There was a thought that struck me. Um, you guys remember earlier on they were talking about like, I'm going to move it to the third synthesis for a minute but they talk about um it, it, it's a question of subjectivity and i think it's in two point or i think it's in like 3.7 or so but they say some of the effect of right it's the move of so i am the king therefore the kingdom is mine mm -hmm. um it, it's something like that but they're talking about the, the third paralogism there but i think that's kind of the that helps us kind of start thinking about this point about subjectivity, right? Where it's the, so that's where it was becomes the, so I'm the, I, and I think that's almost how they phrase it too. This is just a thought I wanted to get in there before I, I, I think I've forgotten it to now three times, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I, I posted, ahead, I posted the quote in the chat. I was just going to let you know. Perfect. Um, Page 87, 88. You're better than a remember all, you know that? <laughs> I, just I think he's got control F as well. Yeah, and <laughs> too much time with, uh, you know, PDFs in front of me, so kind of got used to it. Yep. Um... I want to uh, read a little bit from Holland before we move on, because I like his sort of uh, his discussion he has around this. Um, um, uh, ultimately, the, this comes from uh, Sartre, uh, the critique of dialectical reason, the idea of subject groups and subjugated groups. Uh, this distinction leads back to the difference posted in the fourth theses of schizoanalysis between the two poles of libidinal investment, schizophrenic and paranoiac. Subject groups are characterized by unconscious investments of schizophrenic form, while subjugated groups operate according to pre-conscious investments of paranoid form. Generally speaking, subject groups pursue unconscious revolutionary breaks, while subjugated groups only manage pre-conscious ones, even when they are successfully bringing about a revolution. But a given group can also alter its mode of functioning, passing from subject group to subjugated group and vice versa. 
For this reason, Deleuze and Guattari insist on distinguishing between the form of libidinal investment, paranoid or schizophrenic, and the actual historical impact of group activity. A group can indeed produce revolution, even as its form of investment oscillates between schizophrenic and paranoid, or evolves, as happens from one to the other. However, only a consistently schizophrenic investment will sustain an unconscious revolutionary break, multiply resonances and effects, and produce a permanent revolution. Uh, we're going to be getting into that here, and I want to make sure that we sort of... Uh, Holland says a lot of things very nicely that help me at least get through um, paragraphs that are exceptionally dense. Um, all right. You know, I, will I had go ahead. I had I had dinner with Holland once. Oh no, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. You know what he did when the bill came? He said, "Hey, you want to go Dutch?" Oh my God. You know, at some point, I, I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to handle puns anymore. I may, I may be hitting my limit and I'm a dad. Like I, I don't have a, that should be my jam. You've it's overindulging. Um, that's the irony. I, I have no children. Yeah. Only, only puns. <laughs> um, all right. We'll continue. Uh, but inversely, they are also continually closing up again remodeling themselves in the image of subjugated groups, reestablishing interior limits, reforming a great break that the flows will not pass through or overcome, subordinating the desiring machines to the repressive aggregate that they constitute on a large scale. There is a speed of subjugation that is opposed to the coefficients of transversality, and what revolution is not tempted to turn against its subject groups stigmatized as anarchistic or irresponsible, and liquidate them? How do we combat the deadly inclination that makes a group pass from its revolutionary libidinal investments to revolutionary investments that are simply pre-conscious investments or investments of interest, then to pre-conscious investments that are simply reformist? And where do we even situate such and such a group? Did it ever have revolutionary unconscious investments? The surrealist group, for example, with its fantastic subjugation, its narcissism, and its superego? It can happen that one lone man functions as a flow skiz as a subject group through a break with the subjugated group from which he excludes himself or is excluded. Artaud, the schizo. And where do we situate the psychoanalytic group within this complexity of social investments? Every time we wonder when it started going bad, it is always necessary to trace further back in time. Freud, as the group superego and Oedipalizing grandfather, establishing Oedipus as an interior limit with all kinds of little narcissists around, and Reich the marginal, plotting a tangent of deterritorialization, causing the flows of desire to circulate, smashing the limit, breaching the wall. But it is not just a matter of literature or even psychoanalysis. It is a matter of politics, though not, as we shall see, of a program. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nicely straightforward. I've always liked the use of our tone, the, the surrealists here, and even, even if it's not a matter of literature delusing watery, um, by God it is to me. But no, I, I like that example because they've got a point, right? I mean, our toe is 
and he's probably not doing intentionally right like he's he does get it spelled from the surrealists and you know he does kind mm-hmm. of he finds the taboo i mean what's the, the taboos or the values and that does cause him to get um you know ejected right it's interesting to, to see that and then you know we look at this and they look at um our toe on that light right is yeah that did happen and maybe that's their loss but uh there's something about that where what he was doing was causing desire to flow in that group there there is an odd um almost poetry and again this is a thing i think we all have perhaps even in our own lives we've experienced um but the idea of the the surrealist group who were about breaking conventions and norms and yet here was someone arto who broke their norms without breaking their norms it's not like he went back and like oh i'm now a christian fascist and the surrealists were like no but it was oh you're a little too surreal for us thank you so much i don't think we want to go that far and there's a there's an oddness in those moments that happen i think you see a great deal again just to say in 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 pseudo leftist groups or even in what claim to be revolutionary right wing groups um very often actually you see um a member who takes it too far but in the direction that supposedly the group was wanting then they don't because underneath it all and that's the lines that they have here the the ego um how do they phrase it the oh uh, i want to get it right um it's narcissism it's fantastic subjugation and it's superego that that phrasing a way around how these subjugated groups operate which we've all been part of at one point or another and how we have to get in line and it's not even about necessarily one person but it's about the the nature of what that group means to all of us and again representation beats desire the the goal beats desire and suddenly these people who have the chance to actually create these tangents these lines of flight are expelled uh and subject groups can be formed out of subjugated groups through this freud i think is a fantastic example of this uh they they go hard on it as like what a dick he's doing all these things hyper super ego but again this is the his nat- nature he gave us libid- libidinal energy as an abstraction now granted he did all this other shit too i'm not like fighting any of that but there's a really interesting sort of way that people move in and out of these groups and how these groups play and how the social pushes push us towards these things calling reich reich the marginal i like that's heartbreaking like that's heartbreaking to read it's true it's absolutely true but like reich genuinely started out as anti-psychiatry anti-psychoanalysis wanting to change it all and ultimately did kind of come around to this marginal semi-revisionist version that uh, again though had breaks that dng were able to run with and they probably have some in here that they don't even realize that other people are running with other things it's this is this sort of nature of subject and subjugated groups we're always flowing in and out of all of them um i just love the way that they phrase it in here yeah, that's that's how I think of it too, right? Flowing in and out, you know, constant. We're constantly being remade, right? Mm-hmm. And the the Arto one I've always liked because I, I think one of the arguments is like, 
he wouldn't say he was like a Marxist or whatever, right? <laughs> so they were like, dude, you, you've got to be a Marxist if you're going to be one of those. Like, you've got to, yeah. and this is the narcissism, right? You've, you've got to say, I am a Marxist. <laughs> but that's that's the thing, right? I don't I don't think Arco really cared about any of that. If you read to have done the judgment, right? Like, he's not exactly, he's not exactly sold on capitalism, but he's not like, you know, he's not out there like, trying to proclaim the good word of Marxism either. No, he's certainly not a Stalinist, uh, you might say. No, exactly. But everyone wants, everyone's got their idea of their group, what it means, what the intention is. And even though most of them, and I, even politically or online, you'll see this in groups varying from uh, you know, groups of gamers who like a game, uh, who want to change things all the way through to like labor unions to, uh, I, I do work in crypto, for example. Like there's, there's all these people who are part of this and they get essentialized. They essentialize themselves. They essentialize their group. And then ultimately it's about whoever is sticking to that the closest. And even though all of these things, uh, hyper leftism, revolutionary thought, uh, Marxist writings, uh, crypto anarcho libertarianism, whatever it may be, they're all about this emancipatory freeing of people. They all come back, back down and ultimately try to crush those within to fit in with the group, be one of us. Um, I, I have to go with uh, Nick Fuentes and his, uh, everyone's going to be free libertarian paradise that it turns out he like um, manages to check beds of the friends and the leadership of his group to see if they're having sex. And it's like creepy shit, super creepy shit. And this is not unusual in this, these kinds of spaces because we move constantly from subjugated group to subject group. And these groups are pulling at us and then pushing us down and then pulling. And, and there's a million of them we're part of. It's, it's a really fascinating way to sort of think through why we're part of any group or how our investments work, or are we predetermined here? Are we a proletariat? Are we this? Are we, are we trans? Are we cis? Are we straight? Are we Christian? Are we atheist? And what that means um, as someone who sort of, you know, in the early 2000s was part of the new atheist movement. And I couldn't be sadder about that now, but hey, it was what it was. There was an intention of getting out from under the boot of like a totalitarian oppression, but all it got replaced with is like other totalitarian oppression. Um, it's a very strange system and it's how this works. It's fascinating. Um, I do want to get to the next paragraph. Uh, is there any questions on this from anybody, please? It's a long paragraph, but I, it is a good one. It's a little bit more of a straightforward. There's a handful of um, uh, lines in here I do want to go over, but this next paragraph is fairly straightforward. The task of schizoanalysis is therefore to reach the investments of unconscious desire of the social field insofar as they are differentiated from the pre-conscious investments of interest, and insofar as they are not merely capable of counteracting them, but also of coexisting with them in opposite modes. In the generation gap conflict, we hear old people reproach the young, in the most malicious way, for putting their desires, a car, credit, a loan, girl-boy relationships, ahead of their interests, work, savings, a good marriage. But what happens to other people as raw desire still contains complexes of desire and interest and a mixture of forms of desire and of interest 
that are specifically reactionary and vaguely revolutionary. The situation is completely muddled. It seems that schizoanalysis can make use only of indices, the machinic indices, in order to discern at the level of groups or individuals the libidinal investments of the social field. Now, in this respect, it is sexuality that constitutes the indices. Not that the revolutionary capacity can be evaluated in terms of the objects, aims, or the sources of sexual drives animating an individual or group. Assuredly, perversions, and even sexual emancipation, give no privilege as long as sexuality remains confined within the framework of the dirty little secret. It is in vain that the secret is published, that one demands one's right to be heard. It can even be disinfected, treated in a psychoanalytic or scientific manner, yet thereby one stands a greater chance of killing desire or of inventing forms of liberation for it drearier than the most repressive prison, as long as one has not succeeded in rescuing sexuality from the category of secrets, even if public, even if disinfected, i.e. as long as it had not been rescued from the Oedipal narcissistic origin imposed on it as the lie under which it can merely become cynical, shameful, mortified. It is a lie to claim to liberate sexuality and to demand its rights to objects, aims, and resources, all the while maintaining the corresponding flows within the limits of an Oedipal code. Conflict, regression, resolution, sublimation of Oedipus. And while continuing to impose a familialist or masturbatory form of motivation on it that makes any perspective of liberation futile in advance. For example, no gay liberation movement is possible as long as homosexuality is caught up in a relation of exclusive disjunction with hetero heterosexuality, a relation that ascribes them both to a common Oedipal and castrating stock, charged with ensuring only their differentiation in two non-communicating series, instead of bringing to light their reciprocal inclusion and their transverse communication in the decoded flows of desire, included disjunctions, local connections, nomadic, conjunctions. In short, sexual repression more insistent than ever will survive all the publications, demonstrations, emancipations, and protests concerning the liberty of sexual objects, sources, and aims, as long as sexuality is kept, consciously or not, within narcissistic, edipal, and castrating coordinates that are enough to ensure the triumph of the most rigorous censors, the gray gentleman mentioned by Lawrence. There's a lot said here. There's a lot said here. Um, I want to talk about sexuality. I think it's important because uh, one of the issues that I've seen a lot of people have, and I had too, is I took that word to mean um, uh, quite literally my sexuality, uh, hetero, straight, bi, pan, whatever it is. Uh, no. We're talking about sexuality and desire and connective uh sexuality being everywhere sex is everywhere the underlying line that they've made that i've always loved is um under hitler's regime uh the people were actually aroused by the speeches and by the flags and by the tanks and by everything underneath uh the bureaucrat with his fingers fondling folders and running across keyboards that is sexual these things are sexual and it's not about fucking. Fucking is an aspect of that. But 
sex itself, and this is uh, to me an important facet, sex itself is not one entity, two entities becoming one, and it's not even between two entities. Sex is about all of them. Uh, you are many, many entities. And whoever you decide to actually have sex with, you're not just one person having sex with one person, happy day, boring. It is all the parts that are connecting and touching, all of the stimulations, all of the senses, all the sensations. Sex is happening at every level, from your toes and how they grass across each other to your ass on the fucking blanket. They, sex isn't just the act of fucking. Sexuality is connection. And that's the push that they've been making this whole time is understanding underneath it all, the desiring machines, the partial objects are just dying to connect. Sex is the base, but underneath it all, if what we do is repress this and repress connection itself, unbridled connection, we actually are doing the disservice that we're trying to get around from. So when we talk about sexual emancipation, and here, I believe they are aiming directly at probably the American, the, the summer of sexual freedom or how they're doing sexual liberation in general and the overwhelming sort of push in the late 60s, early 70s towards this idea of, oh, sex can be in public and you can have, you know, women shouldn't have to wear bras as sexual liberation. It's like, ah, wait, look, sex can't just be this dirty little secret. If, if ultimately connecting and what that is, is a thing we don't talk about or a thing we don't realize is at this base level. If libidinal energy isn't brought out, it doesn't matter the rest of it. Because no matter what we're doing, we are pushing underneath all of it. The example they give that I adore, um, and some of you kids may not remember, but it's the example I used last time and it's the example I always use when describing this. Um, when gay marriage was being fought for, what you didn't see is you didn't see people just like you saw some demanding, Hey, um, why do you care? Like, holy shit. Um, the comic stamp comic I love made the point, uh, marriage shouldn't be legal in the first place. The fact we made it legal is hilarious, but the, the, the act of pushing for gay marriage or gay adoption, uh, gay couples adopting is never in the, Hey, we're people and we should have this right because we're humans, but they couch it very cleanly. And they did back then in that, we are just like you. My gay relationship has a has a, the same ability to be married. We are just as edipalized. We are just as repressed and American as you. And it was couched like this. It worked in the long term, but this this liberation, as long as we are still caught up in relationships with the disjunction with heterosexuality, the freedom of homosexuality is just a step. And then bisexuality only in the disjunction with heterosexuality. Um, all these things only exist in their disjunction with what is considered hypernormative. No, we need to break out of the Oedipal repression. And we need to understand that sex is everywhere and that these connections are everywhere and that we don't need to justify, we don't need to hide, and we don't need to keep these things secret. The task of schizoanalysis underneath it is to understand the insexes, all the sex that is happening, not just who you're fucking. This is not what they mean, but it's the drives, the investments, the libidinal push, the sexuality that is making people do the things they do, what they're connecting with. And that is the thing we need to get to. But we can't just look at it. There's a bit of a almost uh, quantum moment where you can't, you can either know a, 
a, an atom's uh, spin or electron spinner direction. It's moving. There's a bit of that where we can't just look at desire and go, oh, that's what it's aiming at. Ah, sort. We need to look at the indices. We need to see where a person's investments are and their investments are in their sex and how they treat it, how they handle it, how they handle themselves, how they think about all these things. There's a level where we can actually start to look at these indices and see the larger sort of broadness of where someone sits on the paranoiac to the schizo. And then to be clear, direct sexuality, 100% an indice for sure, but they're not just talking about only about who we fuck. It was a long ramble. I apologize. And, and uh, any questions on what I said, uh, or if uh, anyone wants to jump in and uh, say a thing, you're more than welcome. I rambled for a little long there. This is one of my favorite paragraphs because of it gets at that sort of understanding the the multiplicity we are and how it connects not just with others but with our with what we consider to be ourselves and one and with those around us and those we care for and even you guys and my keyboard and the, the server and everything we do, these things are important. For those of you who don't know, Brooks reads Antiedipus just to get to chapter four. <laughs> I, I, I do actually. I, <laughs> and I'm going to start after this, I'm going to start Antiedipus again, just so I can try to get back to this and try to understand it a little bit better because this underlying point of theirs, it resonated with me so deeply uh, the first time I read through this, it, it hit me, but the first time we did a full reading and we had actually some fucking scholars and doctoral students and postdocs in here to explain it. Um, there's a, there is an absolute reality here to how people behave and how people think and how we need to think about freedom that just hits me very cleanly. And um, I just love it. I love this. I love this chapter so much. We are not going to read the chapters backwards next time. Sorry, Ash. It's a good try. Um, I mean, you can. You can listen to me read them backwards. All these recordings are public, so in theory, you could do that. Um, oh, yeah, no, the, the Asset Horizon crew literally met in uh, our, our fifth reading is when all of them were there. And, uh, yeah, they, they spun out. Yeah, I remember that, too. I miss them. It's a shame they don't come around anymore, but that's how uh, some groups are. They're, they're busy now. They, they got the, the whole um, zero books. They have zero books going on now, too. Yep. Hey, that's not fair. We also have zero books. <laughs> <laughs> that's, zero see, books that's, that's, that's a good pun. I'll take that one. I'll take that fun. Uh, that's not bad. Everybody gets one. Everyone gets one. Everybody gets pun. Um, there we go. Yeah. I, I guess bringing us bringing us back into one book, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like I, I like what you're getting at with the um, the gay liberation movement, as they call it. Um, or I guess the so-called gay liberation movement, but yeah, I mean that's kind of the thing, right? Is like, you know, and, and they, I, I like that they use Reich in the example of. A, in the last paragraph, right, is someone who preach, helps preach the wall, right? His work mm -hmm. has this deterritorializing thing. Whereas, you know, elsewhere, like, it's like, well, yeah, you get so close, but, you know, you hit, you hit the wall, right? It's always important to understand, you know, um, you know, that processorial side of things, right? Like, 
you know, it's it's not an essential thing for Wright's work. It's what it does when it's doing what it's doing, right? And in what context. Uh, and it's a similar point for the, the gay liberation movement, right? Is like, um, there is a marginality. It's similar, like, similar to psychoanalysis when Freud's writing, right? I mean, in, in some ways still today in the U.S., right? Um, and that's the thing, right? Is like, or you look at the Artaud example, right? In some ways, there these things are pushed to the margins, right? Um, and yet, one of the things they do is they appeal to be, um, or rather, the the gregarious begins to reformulize them, right? So that they become a new form of gregariousness. And I I think that's kind of what they're getting at here, right? Is that, you know. Um, there's no difference between a gay interest or a straight interest, right? Those, those kind of um, ideas where, in a, in a sense, right, what they're getting at is that, um, the, the, I mean, at some level it is difference, but at another level, right, what the, what the exclusive disjunction does, um, in, in this case, we're just talking about like um, uh, homosexuality and heterosexuality, right? is it's basically going to be a question of what represents the disjunction, right? And how can one be um, excluded from the the disjunction, right? How can those functions basically be sort of um, relegated, right? How can they be um, kind of, uh, I mean, anti-produced, right? How can they be kind of stopped in their potentialization? Although we could also go back to, is, is, I think it's also 3.7 where they make the point that um, in the in the despotic, right, um, I think they're talking about like the men in power and they basically say, right, uh, it's all homosexuality. <laughs> they're just moving wives for, you know, economic and political reasons. The, the sexualities of the, is homosexual. And I, I think their point is more like, you know, um, you know the the despots perverts right they re keep reproducing themselves right mhm mm uh if anyone is uh, very familiar with dh lawrence i'd love to know the gray gentleman reference here it is a thing that i've i've spent some time on and never actually uh found i haven't read a great deal of lawrence but i've i spent a lot of time in my google foo usually solves these problems but i could not quite figure out what he's referring to there or find the specific piece. And I'm not in the mood to read literally everything Lawrence wrote, but I may have to get to that point. I'll leave it open in case anyone has any idea. Because all I, all I can think is it's his poetry about uh, death and things like that. But I've, I've looked through and I couldn't find a direct line, but I've read everything again, so who knows? Well, if uh, anyone who's listening to this ever knows, please let me know. Please come to our server. I will give you a bonus points. I I just did a quick Google and found a passage. Um, we strolled under the, the uh, we strolled under the spell of the tales of one thousand one nights, when we saw a group of people forming a circle around a man and a woman about twelve yards from the couple. He must have been in his early thirties, and she. In her late twenties, tall and slender, he was dressed in a gray suit and a blue and white silk tie, and was going around the circle requesting questions from the crowd. 
Sitting on a chair in the center, the woman boasted gorgeous, dark, lustrous hair and lips red like a poppy flower. She wore an elegant dress, an elegant black dress with a narrow collar and a necklace with a silver cross pendant resting on her shapely bosom. I pictured her eyes large, dark, and sumptuous, but I never saw them because she had been blindfolded with a black, dense handkerchief. And then this goes on for a while, so I'll, I'll post the rest because there's like five more paragraphs. Is that the man who loved islands? Uh, you know what? It says the mind reader above it. So. Wait. Oh, this is somebody's... Damn it. This is something somebody wrote playing on Lauren's. There you go. I didn't... I was like, I have no idea. That's not it. Well, well, I've done led you guys astray. I, I apologize. Well done. I'll be... Ed I'll, I'll edit that other recording. <laughs> edit that a lot. I'm not editing it out. Oh, damn it. What, at least for those hey, of you I look stupid home, all the time on here. You get to look stupid on here, too. For those of you at home, I look forward to your tweets. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I couldn't figure out. I, I, again, I haven't read everything, but it's just like, it feels like an important reference. It ends the paragraph. And then it starts the next paragraph, and it's very frustrating. I don't know. Uh, let's, let's, uh, any questions on that paragraph before I jump forward? Um, let's give it a shot. Let's head forward. Um, Lawrence shows in a profound way that sexuality, including chastity, is a matter of flows, an infinity of different and even contrary flows. Everything depends on the way in which these flows, whatever their object, source, and aim, are coded and broken according to uniform figures or, on the contrary, taken up in chains of decoding that resect them according to mobile and non-figurative points. The flows schizes. Lawrence attacks the poverty of the immutable identical images, the figurative roles that are so many tourniquets cutting off the flows of sexuality. Fiancé, mistress, wife, mother, one could just as easily add homosexuals, heterosexuals, etc. All these roles are distributed by the Oedipal Triangle, the father-mother-me, a representative ego, thought to be defined in terms of the father-mother representations by fixation, regression, assumption, sublimation, and all of that according to what rule? The law of the great phallus that no one possesses, the despotic signifier prompting the most miserable struggle, a common absence for all the reciprocal exclusions where the flows dry up, drained by bad conscience and resentment. Quote, Sticking a woman on a pedestal on the reverse, sticking her beneath notice, or making a model housewife of her, or a model mother, or a model helpmeet, all mere devices for avoiding any contact with her. A woman is not a model anything. She's not even a distinct and definite personality. A woman is a strange, soft vibration on the air, going forth unknown and unconscious and sinking a vibration of response. Or else... She is a discordant, jarring, painful vibration, going forth and hurting everyone within range, and a man the same. End quote. Let's not be too quick to make light of the pantheism of flows present in such texts as this. It is not easy to deedipalize even nature, even landscapes, to the extent Lawrence could. The fundamental difference between psychoanalysis and schizoanalysis is the following. 
Schizoanalysis attains a non-figurative and non-symbolic unconscious, a pure abstract figural dimension, abstract in the sense of abstract painting, flows schizes or real desire, apprehended below the minimum conditions of identity. So that's last sentence is a lot. That last sentence is a lot. We'll get there though. Uh, Jack, go for it. Mutal grin too. Just, just to because we were talking about D. H. Lawrence, and I gotta make up for my misleading. There we uh, go. That's from Endnote Forty One. D. H. Lawrence. Uh, the text is: We need one another in the magazine Phoenix, and it's a posthumous text. So, there you go. The answer may be, and we need one another. There we go. It's a really um, beautiful piece. Uh, we read a bit of it last time. Um, and so with men and women, it is in relationship to one another that they have their true individuality and their distinct being in contact, not out of contact. This is sex, if you like, but it is no more sex than sunshine on the grass is sex. It is a living contact, give and take. The great and subtle relationship of men and women, man and woman, in this and through this, we become individuals. Without it, without real contact, we remain more or less non-entities. Um, he then goes on to actually not necessarily give a shit about the term man and woman. It's poetic. I, I adore this piece uh, quite a bit. Um, because of that last bit that he has there, um, everything it's a just a really well written piece um oh a woman is a strange soft vibration on the air going forth unknown and unconscious seeking a vibration or response or she's a discordant jarring painful vibration going forth hurting everyone within range and a man the same in in italics it's uh it's intended for excessive inf in, uh emphasis there because it's the point um people are this um these are secondary attributes and vibrations that have been added to some level of subjectivity we, we aren't we are not the thing we are the flows moving and it's very difficult to break away from oedipalizing even the flows as they say here it's very, in fact we just do it um we do it all the time um it's fine it's just the thing we do. But the, the difference would be that we need to, uh, underneath all of that, keep fighting for this non-symbolic, whatever we can do so we can get to that point of the minimum conditions of identity. What is the minimum bit of identity? And that's where we start being able to see how the sex works. And again, to quote Lawrence, uh, sure, the people having sex. This is sex, sure, but it's no more sex than sunshine on the grass is sex. And I love that phrasing of it because this is where we start seeing how things connect, how they find power from each other, how they uh, produce desire in the moment of their consumption of it. The, the connective synthesis, remember, the connection, it produces in the moment of its connection. It, 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 it builds its own almost energy in that moment. It's an extraordinary process. I just love how he phrases it, but here it's said very cleanly how we need to get beyond these identities to the minimum possible. And we haven't quite reached it mostly. It's a lot. It's a tough one. And this is the thing kind of going back to where 
we started in some like the, the diagrams and that right it it's to get to that point i think in some ways right where something like an identity um and i think of the lucretius essay in logical sense right i mean that's kind of what deleuze is getting at here right where something like an identity um acts in this totalizing way right then it has this exclusive disjunction right um in the as opposed to like the way he sees lucretius and where the the atom um is not what totalizes uh the, the things that are comprising it right so it's like a gestalt the sum is it, the sum is an n as opposed to the sum terminating you know, I think that's kind of what he's getting, what they're getting at here, right, is so long as identity functions in this manner, right, it really can be subjugating. I'm posting a PDF, uh, page 277 is where I was reading from, if anyone's wanting it. Um, it's, it's a really great uh, piece. A lot of D.H. Lawrence is, uh, to be frank, uh, there's just too much of it I've never been able to make it all the way through um, everything, but it's beautifully written. It's not page 277, where is it? God damn it. Whatever, you'll find it. Search for a pedestal. Still. That's right, you gotta be like Mike, use control F. It works usually, maybe. Maybe it doesn't. There it is. Uh, come on. I think it's page 300, actually. No, it is 299. That's close, not 277. I need to change that. Uh, it, does the paragraph make sense? Because this is this is where we should start. Actually, these things should be coming together for you at this point, and these things should start clicking. Where it's like, oh, as we're going through all of this, and we've talked about first chapter, you know, the general way that desiring production operates, the the material effects and reality of it. Then, as we move into the second, it's the generalized repression, the creation of representation, and how representation then impedes on it. And then the third is about the sort of emergent. Uh, large-scale social nature of how representation ends up becoming a large-scale network effect that, that even more conditions how desire is not only manipulated and moved, but how it's built and how our investments move. And as we move to this fourth and this final section, it's about us starting to understand all of these things so we can utilize them to identify elements, not just in other people, although I, I think this is a lot of this is very clearly written at uh, uh, the analyst um, and those who want to take place in that situation. But I think a great deal of it is written towards all of us uh, to look at the fascist within, to look at how we internally think of these things and how we have the models and how we have these things set up and we pretend we are one or two of these, which is fine. We, we have to socially, we have to be something. Uh, but that we aren't and that we are able to see these minimum conditions of even our own identity or those around us to be able to understand the groups that we're in, the actual investments we carry, no matter what we say, what our libidinal investments are as well. 
consider it open. Uh, if you if you don't feel like vo uh, voice, we have the anti-Oedipus reading uh, chat, and you can type in there. I'm watching it, uh, and you can just type anything, and we'll answer there as well. Not a big deal. Happy to, because before we move on, because I'm we're done for the reading for the day. If you're not asking questions, is the short version. Um, we're not moving on at this point. We're going to stop here for right now. Next week, we will be moving to the next paragraph. And this should be where the culmination really comes together. Where we start to understand how Oedipus triangulates, creates, crushes us, and demand woman, this, that, homosexual, whatever, when we're none of those things. These are categorics that are given to us by the space of representation and by the conditioning of desire. And we need to get back to these sort of minimum conditions of identity and understanding them. You're not doing away with this. Again, representation is necessary. I have to talk to you. You have to talk to me. This isn't throwing all of it out, you know, baby with the bathwater. This is much more of, hey, uh, understand where you're at, what your actual desires are invested in, what you believe your desires are invested in, your pre-conscious, your groups that are invested in, and situate them properly and understand where you're sort of actually at in the social structure of things. And also with that, your personal revolutionary potential. I'm also going to throw in here just because why not? It's the other part of that uh, book, Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious and Fantasia of, of D.H. Of, uh, Lawrence. Um, Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious and Fantasia of the Unconscious. Um, phenomenal. Uh, secondary collection of Lawrence's sort of works and critique on them. It's on your shelf. Good for you, Jean-Claire. It's a fucking good book. I haven't, I haven't actually gone out and bought it. I've just got the PDFs and they're very good. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. Um, I do want to leave with um, uh, a piece from Holland. Um, feel free to type away if anyone wants to, uh, but I want to leave with Holland's final sort of paragraph on this. Um, happy as ubiquitous as they are, subjugated groups under capitalism only ever have one leg to stand on. Decoding and deterritorialization are constantly pulling the rug out from under any permanent formation, including those of capital itself. And that is where the chances for revolution lie, according to Deleuze and Guattari. On the side of the molecular and the schizo, schizo-revolutionary strategy seeks to reinforce and magnify the subversive thrust of the capitalist decoding and deterritorializations to provoke the transmutation or schism of subjugated groups into subject groups to, quote, assemble its desiring machines and its subject groups in the enclaves or at the periphery, end quote, so as to attain critical mass and overthrow power to free desiring production from molar social production and subordinate the latter to the former. Probably my favorite analysis on this entire bit. I think that's correct too about the deep. Yeah, I mean, this is why I've kind of started using the, like, the word preservationist too, because like, that's the thing, even capitalism comes with deterritorialization and decoding, right? It's sort of at that molar level, right? It's this social production of it. But even then, right? I mean, those identities, um, he's, he's right. They will have the rug thrown out from underneath them. Mm -hmm. um, 
Now, whether that's a molar uh, potential or molecular potential is another question, but you know, I mean, that's the thing, right? Even cap, even with capital associates, you know, those those things are constantly going to be um, falling away just as much as they're being uh, just as much as they're being fashioned. Was well, the play to lean into rainbow capitalism? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say directly. Um, like the Pink Floyd thing? No. Uh, capitalism, by its nature, is always pushing for innovation. <laughs> like this is the, th the the power. There's a power in capitalism, and it's a thing that anti-capitalists and and people who are like rabid Marxists don't want to acknowledge because they just want to sort of move back to this non-capitalist formation of how production is, is organized. I have issues with believing whether or not that's even possible. Um, instead, what we need to do is we need to look at the parts of capitalism that, that are there, the machines, how do machines work? How do they operate? So it's not about leaning into rainbow capitalism and the sort of uh, accelerationist version there. It's about understanding here are the pieces of how capital works. Here is how these ways sort of produce what they produce. Here's how they affect what they affect. And can we reorganize? Can we change places for things? Can we, um, can we set it up? So that way, instead of capital and representation subjugating desire underneath it, that it's actually possible for desire to subjugate representation because that's actually how it works. If a, a child on his own has representation, it's of their, their tools that are used to communicate. A child builds machines. They talk, they use words, but the words aren't the thing telling them they're using words to talk to other people. But over time words shift and words begin to control us. I, don't early on, there's no three-year-old in the world who says I'm straight or gay, unless your parents are fucking weird. You're just a fucking three-year-old. But at some point you maybe have desires one way or however you do. At some point you start using the word, oh no, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm gay or I'm, I'm straight. Well, are you, are you that thing? No, but it's, it's the easiest way for me to communicate that this is generally where my interest is and that I prefer having sex with this type of person. But that's my desire dictating the word. The shift happens when the word begins to submerge the desire, to code it, and to start creating secondary representations that affect it. So now you are straight. And that's your identity. You are that. And like it's, again, fuck whoever you want to fuck. That's not the point. It's that you are that, and you say that, and you use these words, but it's not just straight, it's not just gay, it's not just American, it's not just man, it's not just woman, it's happy, sad, successful, it's Steve, Brooks, Ash, Drew, it doesn't matter. These words become, over time, meaningful. And when I say, I am Brooks, that doesn't mean anything in any rational world. But it does to people who've known me and who've said it many times and heard me say it and who've spent time with me. Brooks is a thing, not me, the organism, but the word, the name, the person. And that determines who then I become. This is where desire is enslaved by representation. And capital does it better than anyone because all of the shit we do, everything is conditioned by whether or not it makes us money because, you know, we can die. 
Because literally that's how it works. Uh, we could die. So we don't want to die. So we do things, we hustle and we want to hustle. We want to survive. We want to not have to worry and have death at our doorstep. And it's like, if there is an, an impetus between everybody that we can share, it's we don't want that. And so that conditions us because capital makes us think that it did the thing or is a thing that the markets did a thing and not just a group of people acting in contingent ways in about a thousand different ways, plus all the desires behind them and these incredibly, no, we want, it's this thing, this one thing, and that's what capital is. And capital does everything for us, which is bullshit. People do things, people make. This is where Marx was awesome and kind of helped us understand. Oh, people actually make society. Society doesn't make people. How we produce and how we build makes society. It, it determines if we live in factory towns. It determines if we live, for example, in China. Oh, look, they changed their entire landscape to fit rice paddies because these specific areas are the only places that can be. So those people had to be moved out. It's not that the land determined that they were going to do that. It's that they needing things and producing certain ways determined the land that the world is emergent from us. We have an amazing power in that sense. So our desire has an exceptional ability to do things, but we need to name it. And by naming it, we've fucked it. We've, we've bottled it and said, this desires this, this desires that, this is that. And desire goes, oh, oh okay, well, I, I guess I want that now, cool. And that's it. So we need to switch, we need to swap, we need to flip it and go, Actually, I'm an emergent, unique person, and I'm going to do whatever I do. My desires are going to be what they are. I'm, my sex is in sexes. It's not any one sex, two sex, three sex. It's not trans, gay, straight. You are just the contingent, unique person that you are, and allow your desires to flow, and then allow representation to be in service of that so we can communicate, so we can do things, so we can do extraordinary things that way. That's my ramble. We are at the end of the two hours, and uh, we made it through more than two paragraphs, which I have to say I, I give us great credit for, although not a lot of you talked, so it's entirely possible we left a lot of you behind, but hey, um, you never quite know. Um, but I want to say thank you very much for joining us at the DGQC, and we look forward to seeing you next week. I'm going to make a note in the PDF where we're at so I don't have to spend the first minutes of every one of these where I just go... Where where did we leave off last time? Um, and, at least and I, I won't have to. to go. I don't know, bro. No, maybe cake. not. Yeah, exactly. And then Drew's like, "No, it's the other one." Shit. Yeah. Next week. Cool. Uh, thank all of you for joining, and uh, very much appreciated. Uh, as always, highlight of my week, and I love you all very much, in a mostly sexual way. <laughs> from sunlight on the grass to sunlight on sun. the ass as grass loves sun absolutely that's right <laughs>